Hey, I'm Kyle Daly with Cage Daily Knives. You're listening to the Work For It podcast. We've got another good one for you today. We've got an interview with the one and only KH Daily Knives. Kyle, how you doing, man? How you doing? Pretty good. I uh, realized I'm an old man now. So <laughs> I uh, I mentioned to you a little bit before, but uh, we just got an asphalt driveway and we had a Ooh. gravel driveway before. And uh, I am a lot more excited about that than I feel like I should be. And I'm starting to like recognize <laughs> my old man status. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like everybody has a point in their life where there's just like those little things that you used to make fun of your dad about being excited for and you start to feel like oh wow that's cool and then you realize oh shit the gray hairs aren't far off <laughs> well i already i think i have some gray hairs hey so hey no at least at least that was the uh or that didn't bother me as much as starting to realize some of the other stuff so see the nice thing about shaving your head is you'll never know you'll never know <laughs> nice <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, that's a, that's a good, good thing, but I, I think I'm still going to keep my hair. I'm going to hold on to that for a little yeah. while. Yeah. Well, you gotta, with, with a head of hair like you, you gotta hold on to it. So <laughs> with this, with this new driveway, so do you live on a paved road or are you, are you on a dirt road still? Yeah, we're a paved road. So okay. we're, we're on a little ha a little street that like no city wants to claim in our little area so we're right where four town or four suburbs of chicago come together so right okay. where we're in carroll stream so there's carroll stream wheaton glen ellen and glendale heights they all come together on our little corner and we're still unincorporated carroll stream so our taxes <laughs> are a little bit cheaper we're each each house on our road has a little over an acre which is part of the reason we bought the house we did because we have okay. a big garden and stuff and uh it's just awesome the the people on the road are really nice and there's a like 60 or 80 acre farm at the end they have goats you can buy goat milk they got eggs and uh different chicken stuff sure all. sure so the, how the boys far, how far are you from chicago proper so it it's only about 25 miles but okay. it takes about an hour to get there or more <laughs> that's, that's not bad honestly i mean for speaking as a person who drives an hour to my shop and back every day like an hour to get down to like the second biggest city or i guess now the third biggest city in america it's like you know you're still you're close enough where like you can just run into town for you know this that or the other but then then again it sounds like you're in a rural enough area where you can do a lot of work and not have to you know bug your neighbors too bad yeah everybody's pretty spread out on our road so i've never had Anybody that's even said, even when I had the windows and garage doors open, nobody's complained about grinding or whatever. They, a lot of them have said they even, they've never even noticed. So I don't have power hammers or stuff. Uh, so that is a completely different thing, but. Yeah, you, you definitely have the stock removal on lock because your knives are so incredibly clean. They seem like every surface is just, you know, you know, just, just so that it's, it's great. It's, it looks really good. And of course we can talk about your file work later. I'm sure you can talk, you know, for hours about just file work because you, you taught a class down at blade show, right? Yeah. I've taught the class the last two years down there for file work. And then I taught at the Midwest knife makers guild hammer in up in Mankato just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that was super awesome with Steve Schwartzer. He was kind of the, the big name that they brought in for the, the thing and got to sit and have dinner next to him for three nights in a row so that nice. was pretty awesome 
Tell yeah, me about that experience because like I, I was lucky enough to meet him for a couple of minutes and he's he's a very nice guy. You know, he talked to me like I was just some, you know, just anybody else, you know, mm. he didn't it wasn't if you didn't know who he was, you would you would just assume that he is just a regular guy because he just talks to you about, you know, whatever. How was it sitting and, you know, having conversation with Steve Schwartzer? It was awesome. He's he's like way more connected with people than you would ever think. And right. his wife, Laura, I didn't realize how uh, how great of a knife maker she is. So she's, mm-hmm. she span- specializes in Skagel knives. And I have some of this red handle material that I got from uh, electrical circuit breakers. And he, I brought some of that to the hammer in. And Steve goes, Laura would love this stuff. I go, well, here, take some more of it and give it to her. So uh, she's going to use it for the the little spacers on some of her Skagel knives, uh, nice. which would be pretty cool. Nice. But yeah, Steve's an awesome guy. Like he knows people all around the world. He was talking about uh, going to South Africa to meet with a bunch of knife makers down there, and uh, some of his experience with that. And he was they were touring the Vatican, and his oh, wife wow. said. Uh, now we aren't talking to knives anywhere, anybody. And then he goes up to the gate and he goes, is, I forget the person's name here. And they go, uh, got on the walkie talkie and came out to the gate. And then he like (laughs) went down, went went down into like the, I don't know if crypt is quite the right word where they keep like all the armor and stuff in the Vatican that people haven't, that's not on display for people to see. Oh my God. And they were looking at all these like swords and stuff. It's just (laughs) crazy. Some of the stories and stuff he had and, uh, and Steve he, Schwarzer, so he can just say, "Hey, you know, I know a guy," and they let him right in. You know, well, he knew he actually knew the guy, and they came out. Um, yeah, he came out and happened to be there working that day. So, oh wow. Um, and then, uh, yeah, he he talked to me a little bit about file work. He liked some of the the different ways I kind of approach it, and he was telling me a story about when he did some of his first file work. Uh, I forget the master smith's name but he he had done file work on this folding knife and uh he was super proud of it he spent he said he spent hours and hours and hours on it and he brought it and showed it to him and the he goes what do you think and he goes if you were gonna buy a car would you have four different hubcaps on it (laughs) (laughs) steve goes uh no (laughs) and he's like you got you got at least four different style or types of file work on this uh needs to flow together so Mm. that was one of the stories that cracked me up that he had from some of his file work adventure days but yeah that's a that's a good lesson though because you know you if you're doing something super intricate you want to put as much of your skill into it and show off every single little thing that you want to show off but then again you know sometimes simplicity is key and sometimes it's just you know go with one thing and do it well and or that one, um, what's his name from, uh, shoot, don't half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. Ron Swanson. Ron Swanson. I, <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. I, I love Ron Swanson. I, uh, Nick Offerman is super funny, even not doing his uh, Ron Swanson character. Sure. I've, I've always loved listening to him as a comedian also. He's got a, some good good views on things. Sure, sure. But yeah, the, the file work was interesting because... Yeah, if I, I that's a an area of the spine that a lot of people don't really do much with, and it's a way to add some some real bling there without making it overly gaudy. I think uh, I do a lot with stainless knives, so pretty much all my blades are like pretty sterile. So the the handle and tang is kind of where I choose to put some more of my my style and stuff into. 
how long, like, let's say a typical design, a typical file work, um, how long from beginning to end does it take you? Uh, so each, each file work pattern uh, is drastically different. So one of my, my patterns that I call bubbles, I basically do, or I do all of it on my Broadback grinder now. So I don't actually use a file nice. at all. Um, I spend more time swapping out the wheels and laying out the lines than I do to actually grind the file work. That one's usually takes, if you're, if you're hustling, it could probably get it done in about three minutes. Mm. Um, the thorn pattern is the one that takes a little bit longer. Um, it, it's about, it takes me usually like 10 to 12 minutes now that I've done it. My first ones took me like a half an hour. Um, but now that I've done, I've done like close to 350 knives with file work on them or probably 380 knives with file work on them. Um, I've gotten, gotten pretty good at it. The Celtic one is one of the ones that takes the longest. And then I decided to up the game with a one that I did recently called the Celtic thorn. Mm. It actually has like an additional, uh, thorn in my Celtic pattern. That one takes the longest and is a little more of a, you got to be a lot more precise because it's easy to make it not look uh, symmetrical. If your file slips a little bit, it, there's not as much area to blend in and kind of make it look more consistent later. The thorn sure. is one of the easiest ones. If your file slips, you can kind of uh, adjust your curve and blend it in <laughs> a little bit more. Um, yeah. But yeah, some of those other ones you got to be a lot more precise on. Yeah. Um, have you ever thought about doing reels of like a top down look at, you know, like a fast forward version or a time lapse of you doing putting in the file work and then landing on a nice, you know, close up picture of your, you know, rotating shot of what it looks like in the end? Because I feel like that would be be an absolute killer. Yeah, the one of the, the kind of problems is I rotate it around and move it a lot. Um, so I have to like push the knife farther in so it's supported because as you push with the file, it likes to flex a lot. Mm. So you're constantly like moving it around a lot. So it's mm. kind of hard to do like, uh, like everything staying in one place. Um, gotcha. Shot. And you use the, uh, TR maker jig to, uh, or what's it called? The, the triaxle. Yeah. I've got one of their knife vices. I right. really like Thank it. You. I, I use it a lot. I use it on every handle. Uh, on some of my file work patterns, I use it and, um, but I still go back to my, my big bench vice quite a bit, um, uh, just because that's what I've been so used to. And then I've started making a bunch of my bottle openers now, uh, send cut send has been cutting them out of, uh, 304 stainless for me with a laser and they, it's just a couple bucks a piece for them to cut them out and send them to me. It was like, and it takes me like. 20, 30 minutes to cut it out with uh, mm. bandsaw and stuff. And they're all perfect. Like, uh, right. So right. now those bottle openers are, are a thing that's, I've got a, a lower price point option for people for the holidays and stuff too. So that is a huge thing because like, you know, there's so much time and effort that goes into knives and it's really hard to get those price points down far enough where it's like, a, oh, everybody can afford one of these for Christmas. It's, it, you, can, you know, we, we do high end work. We have to you we have to charge the high end price. But like you just said, there's there's those products that you can have at the how much does one of your bottle openers go for? I've been selling them for 40. OK, um, some of my first ones, I charged 50 just because those were all hand cut. But sure. the the laser cut ones, are, I've got them down to forty. It still takes quite a bit of time to do the file work pattern on them and right. get them 
get them cleaned up. The laser leaves a little bit of stuff around the edges and stuff, but a little bit of dross on that. Yeah, um, and then I put a little lanyard on the back too, uh, and then I kind of sharp have like a mildly sharpened point um, that's not really sharp, like you're gonna puncture yourself, but it works really good for opening packages and stuff. And sure. You don't get your main good knife covered in packing <laughs> packing tape uh, adhesive and stuff sure. like that. You know, that's that's nice because, you know, that's one of the things that I've been trying to come up with, like the little keychain bottle openers I've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, there, of course, it's the bottle opener and then there's a little pry bar on it. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's not a whole lot to it other than that. But I'm trying to come up with, you know, what's a little multi-tool piece of steel that you can put on, you know, small enough to put on a keychain. That's you'd yeah. be surprised how many times you go to that because, you know, hey, it's right there. It's on your keys. Of course, you can you always have it on your hip. Yeah, once I started, so I make this knife I call the Pocket Bushcrafter, and I make a pocket sheath for it, uh, for your, like, good to go in your back pocket, and there's a, an extra spot on the side that I put my Leatherman tool in, okay. and I was surprised how many times I reached for those pliers and stuff now because they're on me, where before I just kind of, like, uh, do something that I shouldn't be doing uh, <laughs> to, to try to tighten something. But, no, um, come on. No, no yeah. you've never tightened a <laughs> screw with the tip of a knife before. Nobody's yeah. ever done that. Yeah. Come so, on now. <laughs> but the, uh, but yeah, I, I, I grab that all the time. And uh, with the bottle openers, one other thing is a lot of people are wanting to collect all the different file work patterns too. So oh. uh, a couple of people have two or three of them and they're they're slowly collecting the whole set so kind of hey, cool too have, that's an easy way to get return customers because once they do have the full set of that they're going to need a knife with their mm -hmm. favorite or if they buy a knife and they want a matching bottle opener there we go there yeah. we go it's see that's those are the little things that you know it seems like the vast majority of people miss out on um, it's, it's just, you know, you got to think about, okay, well, what's the hook? Of course, having one sale is good, but like have, having the avenue to have collectability or, you know, you, you can sell more than one thing to a person. And it seems like you do that incredibly well with your, your flair on the, in the file work or, you know, having matching sets of knives and bottle openers, or it's just, it's incredibly, you know, smart you know, business end on your end. Yeah. And the other thing. The other big part of my business is uh, making tools for other knife makers. Being an engineer, I can't turn my head off when I'm working on something and I'm having a problem with it, uh, just coming up with a solution for it. So right. um, one of the things that I had that's been a really good seller is the, the carbide tipped hammers for straightening knives. Mm -hmm. um, when I did my first batch of MagnaCut, I had like $600 worth of MagnaCut uh, that had been all file worked and blanks and stuff and uh, like 80 percent of the blades so it was like 20 20 of the 24 blades i think it was were warped like <gasps> more than i could grind out oh. and then i started doing the shim tempering thing and i did sh over seven shim tempering cycles oh goodness um, at like varying degrees uh talked with laren thomas about different options and then i was thinking i was just gonna have to like re-anneal them uh take the hardness all back out of it and then just redo the hardening cycle uh and try it again and uh with the the file work and stuff in there um it is a little more prone to cracking uh yeah. with the stress risers and stuff so 
Uh, I usually try to prefer not to do that. And then Laren said, I, I'm not sure if this is going to work, but I know these couple of people on Blade Forums really know what they're talking about, and they were talking about some of the the uh, carbide chisels. Mm-hmm. Uh, HSC3, I think, was one of the guys on there, and Dan Bittinger uh, talked to me some about a hammer that he learned about from Salem Straub. And uh, Murray Carter talks a little bit about it with like the tamahogany, I think it's the name of it. It's a Japanese word for, sure. and they use it for sharp or uh, straightening saw blades and stuff too. Um, in the saw industry and um, nobody really made them uh, when I started. So I started making some of those and uh, that's really, really helped with, uh, getting the knife straight the first the first blade at first i didn't think you needed it to be carbide which it turns out you do because the carbide's roughly 90 rockwell c Mm. so much harder than what you're hammering on and uh when i just did it with like a hardened ball peen i ended up breaking the front off of nakiri oh wow (laughs) and then i was like well that didn't work and well and now it's just a shorter nakiri (laughs) (laughs) uh it would be like a four inch one so it's a little little too short um no such thing you can make it happen and then on one of my boning knives i was using the the three-point method that i've used in my arbor press for some of my like 154 cm cpm 154 blades uh, where you have like two points uh, supported and then kind of push in the middle to bend it back. Uh, then that ended up breaking one of the things like mm-hmm. in half right where the, the handle met the the blade. Mm-hmm. It was like, well, that didn't work. And then, yeah, that's when it started me down researching that, that carbide hammer. Um, I think the, the ball really helps with not getting as many stress risers in there because mm-hmm. the, the Japanese one is more of a V chisel. Uh, where you actually put like a V divot in the steel, right? Um, which I feel like gives you a little more of a, a lot, a lot more prone to if you pry or whatever on it for it to break than the the dimples. And I've even I usually do it when the the blade is at full thickness. I heat treat my blades full thickness, uh, mm-hmm. and I just put like a forty five degree uh, bevel on the edge. Uh, to help when i'm grinding after see this is i i have i bought a bar of magna cut steel like literally the first batch that came out Mm -hmm. um and i've just been kicking around in my i i cut it down into shapes i've got a chef knife and a couple like little edc knives and a of a friction folder you know basically i've had cut out of it and i did the same thing where i cut in 45 degrees on them and then they've just been sitting around because of course i don't have a heat treat oven yeah. Um, luckily I just did this show with Jeremy Ballaball and had a great yeah. time with him. Well, he has a heat treat oven. So I was like, Hey, you know, I'll give you some, some of this carbon fiber I've been playing around with. And, uh, in exchange, would you, would you, um, heat treat this, this magna cut for me? Mm-hmm. And I'm just sitting here thinking like, Oh shit. Well, what, what happens if they all crack or warp or whatever? And it's like, there's nothing he can do about it. It's, it's just, you know, they've been sitting around in my shop for the better part of a year. And I've just been like, okay, well, one of these days I'm going to send them off to somebody and you know, well, if they now, come back warped, you can get a hammer. <laughs> well, there it is. I'm going to say, I'm going to need to order one of those hammers. And yeah. also I was going to say, you know what? It would be an absolute darn shame if that got mixed in with the rest of your hammers. And all of a sudden you strike one end, you know, try to, you know, do the team striking thing and you know, Oh wait, that's carbide, isn't it? Yeah. Well, well the, uh, <laughs> 
well the the hammers that i use are a four ounce and an eight ounce one so oh, okay. they're they're super small you wouldn't mix it in with your forging hammers oh gotcha gotcha um, and i i put the ball in on the the ball peen side of it uh which makes it a little bit harder made it really hard to figure out how to get that kind of centered um mm. and buying so many of the the ball peens some of them are kind of like more like an arrowhead shape instead of a ball some of them are are really well rounded over it's been interesting because i've i've bought like close to a hundred over a hundred of them now mm -hmm. and just seeing the manufacturing deviation between all of them has been pretty interesting um but yeah the it i i thought about putting it on the the flat face portion of it which would make it a lot easier to drill and kind of get it centered but i didn't want to make the hammer completely useful or useless for other stuff on the the bench so i i use the hammer i use that hammer on my workbench for tapping the edges of the heat treat foil uh tighter and stuff like gotcha. that too that's smart that's smart so so it's not just those, you know, you have your knives, you have your bottle openers, you have now your, your carbide tipped, you know, hammers. Mm -hmm. You also have so, you know, it, it's a part of your engineering brain that has facilitated it, but your 3D printed goods, like for instance, your, your um, epoxy holder so that you, you know, when I'm, when I store my epoxy, it's up on the shelf and they're sitting upright. And then, of course, you know, you don't think about it. And then all of a sudden you're you've got everything laid out and you realize, oh, shoot, my epoxy, that's almost empty. I've got to flip it over and wait the couple minutes for that epoxy to dribble down. You're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs. Yeah. Well, you've you've ingeniously, you know, you've come up with a 3D printed solution to that. Yeah. The first one I made for myself was all just 3D printed one piece that all got printed. And uh, I posted a picture of it and I immediately got like five people that said hey can you print me one of those and i was like well this won't exactly ship in the because us usps is gonna smash that thing <laughs> um, what no yeah. come on because i mean it, it was relatively sturdy for revision one but it wasn't like as sturdy or definitely not as sturdy as it is now uh but now it's all flat packed and you can either have the the two big 16 ounce bottles and two four ounce bottles which is what i mainly use uh so i've got my uh, G flex in the two big bottles. And then I use white and black, uh, epoxy dye for the, the two smaller oh. ones that are in there. That's how I get the, the color in with the file work, uh, is that dye. So, uh, that just keeps everything ready to go. You just pick it right up, squeeze it. I use a little, um, reloading scale because it's, uh, a real fine measurement. Uh, but it, you can get one for like 20 or 30 bucks and I use a little mixing tray, um, and I measure way out each, the, each of the, the epoxy and the hardener, um, to make sure I get the, the appropriate mix when I'm mixing and then, uh, put the little diet, put, put the dye in See, uh, after I've already mixed it up quite a bit. You are much better than I am because I'm sure you've seen on my videos where I just lay out some tape and I'm like, oh, well, you know, I you know, squeeze out about a 50 cent piece amount of one. And then I just cover the other one with the other one and just, yeah, that's good enough. Yeah. that And that does work. Uh, one of the other pro moves to do instead of the tape is uh, they're getting harder and harder to find though, is phone books. Cause you can put, rip the, rip the page off, throw it away. And then you got more, more paper right there. Right. So right. Uh, I did that a lot when I was first starting out before I waited out. And then I was just, 
I was never quite certain that I got the mix ratio right and right. then bought one of those little scales and it's been been great ever since. That or a Dixie cups or those what like what you do, those silicone things. Yeah, I, I used the silicone for a while. The the thing about what I view or the silicone uh I've got the silicone mats that I put underneath the blades uh to keep the workbench clean, but when I was mixing my epoxy in the silicone I would get like, uh, maybe like 15 times using it. And then the epoxy just stuck to the silicone oh, really? and it would pull, pull oh. pieces out of it. Um, yeah, I bought one of the little silicone trays. It was for woodworking, um, when I was at Rockler, but, uh, yeah, it just never really held up super long. And, and the plastic trays, they're like three or four bucks for like a hundred of them. Right. So they're, they're pretty easy to just toss right that's that's not a oh yeah that's that's definitely a, a consumable for sure so you've got your epoxy holder what tell us all about the other 3d printed tools that you've been coming up with so i started off with uh wanting to do an s grind on one of my chef's knives and i bought one of bill binky's 36 inch radius platens and it worked great and then i'm like well i want to hand sand this and uh I started off trying to grind out a piece of G10, kind of matching the platen. Um, didn't like that at all right. uh, for my, my engineering brain in me to, I uh, was like, this isn't nearly as precise. And then one of my coworkers at the time had been trying to get me to uh, buy a 3D printer. He's like, there's all sorts of stuff you could use for it uh, all the time. And then that kind of... Uh, put a light bulb off in my head and he actually printed some of my first ones before I bought my 3d printer. And, um, when I made the first one, it wasn't uh, a removable insert in the handle. So it took a long time to print the, the pieces. Mm, gotcha. And then, uh, cause I was just planning on using it for myself. And then a couple people saw it and said, Hey, I do a lot of hollow grinding. Can you make me one with a 10 inch radius? And then mm. that's when it, came up with the idea of having the interchangeable inserts because the, the handles, you can just un undo the screws and uh, pop in a different size. And I use double-sided tape and then you can uh, stick your sandpaper right to it. And then it's kind of got like a little bit of a sharp edge. So you can kind of just like shear the piece right off of it. Mm. Um, and it works really well. So those were, those were really good. And a lot of people have uh, been buying those a lot and like those a lot. And, uh, one of the guys, uh, Jason Ritchie, he's a slip joint maker here, actually here in Illinois. Uh, he does the, I think it's called the Catch Bit podcast. If you guys are into, if you're into slip joints, definitely check that show out. Uh, it's him and Mike Moran and I forget the other guy's name at the moment, but they do a lot of history shows and stuff. But he, he bought a couple of the sanding buddies and he goes with my three, three and a half inch blade. It's, it's pretty hard to use because the sanding buddies one inch wide. Sure. Um, cause I would basically for bigger knives was what I designed it for. And he goes, can you make something that's like a half an inch wide, uh, for, for doing my slip joints. And then that's when it kind of, uh, facilitated the micros that I do. Um, one side's kind of like a, one of them's like a football shaped and it's actually compensated to have, um, the 70 durometer and 55 durometer pads mm. um, to give it just a little bit of cushion when you're going to the higher grits and stuff. And then um, the other one that has like a flat top is actually printed to be the exact uh, 
size that it is. Um, so a lot of those slip joint guys actually buy, if they're using like a 14 inch wheel, they'll actually buy two sizes. So they'll buy a 14 and a 12 and they use the 12 inch one after they've used the 14 one to get that, uh, really to really crisp the line from the flat to the, the hollow, um, which I didn't, didn't even know. And, uh, cause I don't do ho many hollow grinds. Isn't it crazy that you come up with, you come up with, with a tool like that. And all of a sudden the people who buy it from you come up with all these different crazy ways to use it that you would have never mm -hmm. thought of. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first sanding sticks I started to make were actually the flat ones. Um, cause I always loved the way hand sanded blades looked, but I always hated doing it. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the fl I make these ones, uh, out of Micarta and G10, um, so the black and brown micarta, and then I do blue, green, red, and, um, orange, uh, G10 pieces, but they're, they're eight inches long and I put, uh, rubber pieces in with them. So there's a 70 durometer and a 55 durometer. The 70 is like the same hardness as what a contact wheel would be. The 55 is a little bit softer, almost not quite as soft as like a pencil eraser, but I use that on like 600 grit and above that just gives it a little more flex and sure. uh, cushion to not, to get a little more consistent uh, scratch pattern. And then I use the 70 durometer for the like uh, 400 grit. And then I usually, if I need to go below 400 grit, I use just a flat stick without any rubber on it whatsoever. Um, but yeah, that that's gotten a lot of good feedback on it. A lot of people really like that and uh, those are those are really helpful and just a lot more comfortable uh, with the rounded and radius edges and stuff. Sure, sure. Uh, so. so you have two, you know, really successful, you know, you have your, you know, of course, your standing buddy and your epoxy holder. Do you have anything in the works that you're constantly or you're thinking about currently? Do you have something like on the back burners that you're trying to make work? Is there another 3D printed thing that you're planning on coming out with? sometime uh, in the future not really a 3d printed thing okay. right now uh one of the things that i am working um with ben butler he's uh he's got a that's what uh, i i guess a a 3d printed machine. i was hoping to come up with a new idea with the 3d printed and then push you towards this but <laughs> this is this is the thing that i i've got a list of things to talk about and this is like number one on the list okay i'm so excited yeah. about it so when I, when I heat treat, I, I really like to use the, the aluminum plates and the mm -hmm. first aluminum plates that I had, <clears throat> if, when you're trying to do any sort of batch, uh, those aluminum plates heat up really fast. Like right. I'm sure you, you're aware. So, uh, when I still worked at Navistar, um, one of the guys machined me some plates with, uh, fins in the, the back of them. Uh, I was able to do it after hours and stuff and, um, uh, I, I gave him a knife and he gave me the plates Nice and, uh, yeah, those worked, trades. <laughs> worked out really nice. Um, but the, the, the fins didn't, didn't cool nearly as fast as I thought it would. I'd ha I had a fan blowing kind of where the aluminum plates were and I even sprayed them down with water and stuff while I was heat treating. So the, it didn't quite cool, cool them off quite as quick as I was hoping. And uh, for my flat grinding, I use a water-cooled platen chiller made by Nathan the Machinist, uh, Nathan Carruthers. Um, he made a bunch of them 
many years ago and offered them for sale on blade forms when he did some radius platens uh, to go with that because the radius platen does a lot more friction. You want to try to keep that cool. Um, and then that, that spawned this uh, project with Ben. Uh, so he's going to try to uh, use his shot bot to, I drew it up in uh, Fusion 360 and he's going to mill it out and hopefully that gives me the, the cooling that I'd like to do to to heat treat five or six blades at a time mm. and not have the plates get overly hot by the end of it. See, the one thing that I've resorted to, because I also use aluminum plates, mm -hmm. and a lot of times it's just, you know, I, even on my high carbon stuff, I, I dunk it in the oil for eight to ten seconds, then put it up in the plates to cool down to room temperature. And nope. I, it's the same thing where it's like those things, those plates get screaming hot and it's like, how much is this really cooling things down? Or is it really just holding the heat in, in with it? And it's not really come to, coming down to room temperature if I'm, you know, heat treating more than just a couple knives at a time. Yeah. And well, that, so what I've resorted to is I've just gotten a little spray bottle and I fill it full of ice water and I just mm -hmm. constantly spray it. And it's like, and I'm also making a mess in that corner and I'm rotting the wood around it. And it's just like, you know, this isn't a long-term practical use or a practical thing to do, you know, long-term. So I think that this idea with the, with the grooves in it, so, ugh, man, it's, it's so intelligent. Continue. Yeah, Sorry. I, I interrupted. So no, you're good. It'll have a back plate on it and it'll run through all these passageways uh, to help cool it down. Right. But um, it's also designed. So we're going to have lines on there so you can actually mount it in like a bench vise. Uh, so you can take the jaws, take the screws out of your jaws and put some longer screws in there to mount it in a vise. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, that's how I had have mine mounted already. So I take it out and put it in my vise, and then I can just crank the handle, and it gets it uh, flat and right. uh, gets a lot of pressure on it. I know a lot of people just kind of like put it on the bench and kind of hold it down with their hands and then spray the air around. Um, this this way, it gives you more more free hands to. Um, right. I, when I, when I'm messing around with steel that hot, I I don't want to try to be. <laughs> manipulating with your hands yeah fumbling at all right um so yeah th that'll have some lines on there to help mark out um to get it even uh in the center to drill your holes for whatever size vice you're going to be using hopefully sure so ben's ben's getting the material on order and hopefully we'll have something out fairly soon i've been looking um, at your prototype ever since it was mentioned on the podcast mm -hmm. and it seems like I mean, those are some really thick hunks of aluminum. You're, is that just your your um, initial version of it is going to be those giant hunks of aluminum and it's going to slim down, or is, is that what you're hoping for? So the, the initial piece is one inch thick, and then it's going to have uh, grooves that are milled a half an inch deep uh, for the water to fill and right. cool. Um, and then there's going to be a quarter inch plate that gets screwed onto the back with RTV is what I'm hoping for will be good enough to seal. Uh, otherwise we might have to go with like an O-ring in there somehow, mm. uh, to seal. Yeah. Um, but then you worry, you know, if you do too many in a row, if somebody has, let's say they're trying to heat treat 40, 50 knives at a time and that over, it's still, you know, the heat overpowers and it gets too hot, that O-ring might melt down into it. Well, the uh, the O ring, the O ring will be on the farthest side away from okay. what should be getting hot. Uh, same with the RTV. The RTV is supposed to be good to like 400 degrees, um, 
is what it, the one I've been looking at. And it's going to have a, I use, I use a little fountain pump to cool my uh, platen chiller for my belt grinder. And just using the, using it without that turned on, it heats up like really fast, mm -hmm. uh, like in a minute or so. And then you flip, uh, there've been a couple times where I forgot to flip on the pump. Uh, so, so I Oops. flip on the pump and then it's like, uh, 10 or 15 seconds. And that is like, uh, cool enough to touch, um, mm. and cool it down really with just that moving water. Uh, and if you put ice, ice in the bucket that you put your little fountain pump in, I think that'll really, uh, suck the heat out quickly to keep those plates at a much lower temperature. I almost wonder if this will eliminate the need to like spray air through it because it's it's if you have ice water pumping through your aluminum plate press like that that's going to mm. be more than good enough. I mean, I feel like that point just spraying compressed air over it is just kind of, you know, eh, you don't really need that anymore. Yeah, it could be. Uh, that's part of the reason why I want to do I want to make one <laughs> and test it out a few times before uh we kick it off and uh, sure. start selling it, but Ben said that the the his shot bot being a little extra rigid uh, just tears through aluminum uh, with kind of a two flute bit. Um, yeah, we're, I'm excited. Uh, hopefully, that's something that will be good for Ben and me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's just another project on the thing, but it seems like something once once it's out and then once people are like seeing how how much of an improvement it is over just standard plates in an mm -hmm. aluminum plate press it's i, I imagine it's going to take off now have uh, you have you done any research have you have you come up with a tentative price that you're hoping to sell like even if you have like a uh between this number and this number we don't have to get we don't have to uh nail you to the wall here no i i we ben and i don't have literally have any idea we we got to see how fast the shot bot can run uh um, gotcha. so uh, until we start making some chips and see how long that those passageways and stuff take to, to machine, we literally have no idea. The aluminum is going to be fairly expensive, right? Just the aluminum, because uh, it's uh, four inches wide and then uh, eighteen inches long. So eighteen inches would be kind of the biggest blade you could put in there. <laughs> Goodness, um, if you need more than that, come on now. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, but I, I, I didn't want to kind of like narrow it down more because uh, mm. like if you're doing an 18 or a, like an eight inch chef's knife, usually that's like 13 inches or so. Right. And then uh, just you have a little bit of extra room uh, or if you want to do like a 10 inch chef or something, and right. you don't have to be quite as persist or quite as precise putting it in there. And then for the four inches tall, um, if you wanted to do a cleaver or whatever, but the, getting the the two passageways kind of around where the vice jaw would uh, have its holes, you mm. needed a little bit of room on either side to make that happen. Mm. Interesting, super interesting. Now, yeah, that's that's so incredibly cool. Are you planning on? Well, this is all f further out in the future, and I'm just super excited about it. So I'm asking you all the dumb questions, but <laughs> it's fine. You know, if this goes well, you know, I'm sure you could probably also do. Okay, well, let's let's do a twenty. 24 inch model let's do a two inch wide model for the let's say if for instance like a guy a guy's out there that only does edc knives you know mm. that he only needs a foot by two inches i mean it's it's pretty easy i imagine at that point to be like okay well let's scale this up or scale this down yeah yeah we could scale scale it and then we or we can even try to do something with um 
making it so you can have it just on your bench if you want to do it with your hand. But those plates just get so hot that I, I think having it mounted in some sort of vice is going to be the, the better way to go. The one that I did and the one that Matt Gentry has at his shop, he, he basically we just have them in the little cheap um, woodworker's vices mounted on its side. Mm-hmm. And having having it be um, horizontal, it makes it so much easier to like place it in there and then you're able to then, you know, just place it in there and then cinch it down instead of like having to awkwardly hold it on that, you know, that angle and then cinch it at the same time. Yeah. Almost all the stuff I do is stainless that I use in foil packets. So I grab the the end foil. of the foil packet, put it in, and then I clamp down uh, so there's a little bit of it in kind of the center sticking up above the plate. And then I loosen, grab it in the center of the packet, loosen the, the clamp a little bit, and then get it perfectly centered and then tighten it the rest of the way. Um, yeah, I mean, for that, getting it in there vertically. That, that makes sense, and that, that seems like a really good use case for it. Man, this this is going to be one hell of a project. And I know we're getting 40 minutes on and normally these podcasts are right around an hour, but you know, I want to jump back, you know, we we've kind of talked about what's in your shop lately. Let's talk let's go back in time here and talk about when Kyle was just getting into making. What was okay. the thing that turned on your maker switch? Was there a project you did way back when or I guess tell us all about it. Well, one of the first ones I remember doing, so my dad my dad liked to work with wood and he's more of an artist. Um, he actually got a master's in art education from Ball State uh, and got a, a, a bachelor's in industrial technology education. And he spent his entire teaching career teaching industrial tech, which is basically shop class. Nice. Um, but he, he liked to do stained glass and he, one of the first kind of like, bigger making projects that I remember other than just hammering nails into two by fours and uh, running around with my tape measure clipped to my diaper from <laughs> what my mom told me. Um, yeah. I had a 25 foot Stanley that apparently was always clipped to my diaper. Uh, so um, we made this like uh, stained glass picture um, that we made and uh, ended up giving it to my uncle Jim um, in Cleveland. And it was uh, super cool just cutting that out and then using the glass grinder and stuff like that. That kind of has always set me on uh, a making thing. I've kind of gravitated a little bit more towards working with metal uh, because I like things to be super precise. Uh, where when woodworking, you kind of need to be precise, but you have a lot more wiggle room. Uh, I think that's part of the reason why it kind of brought me into the knife making thing. You get to work some with metal, some with wood sure. and, uh, the sky's the limit on, uh, what you can do going into like super high end folders and stuff. I'd really like to do, start doing some slip joints. Mm. Um, that's one of the things that I, I keep telling myself that I want to do, but keep getting a lot of orders for kitchen knives that pay extremely well. So um, but yeah, that was one of the first things. And I never, I never even like right out of college and during college, I worked for a machine shop in my local hometown nice. and it was actually one of my friends from, uh, middle school and high school, uh, his dad who worked for Cummins engine company and he started his own machine shop. And that was like, kind of got me the bug for working in a machine shop. You got to work with welders, um, the, the the milling machines, lathes, all that stuff was just super awesome. 
And when I was in high school, uh, I did a drafting class, uh, mm. mechanical drafting, and uh, we got super lucky because Cummins is in our hometown. My drafting teacher was the person who taught the apprentice drafting program for Cummins back when they would do all the hand drawing stuff. So uh, Randy Sims, when he uh, started there, well, we were one of his, I was in his first class in high school and he basically taught us like the apprentice drafting class was like a year. So he basically taught us everything he would teach the apprentice drafting people in a year and they said, uh, Randy, some people are going to take this class like for four years. So you sure. might want to like slow it down a little bit. So after that, like uh, there were a handful of us that knew a bunch of that stuff. So we ended up, it kind of just became like a self-study thing where we'd go to the, the machine shop class next door. I redrew all the prints for the kind of the, the machinists over there. And he would just give us special projects and stuff to do. So um, it was really cool getting to know that that set me up for a lot of the, the drawing and stuff that I've, uh, I do and did for when I worked at the machine shop and when I worked at Navistar making mm. fixtures and things like that. Yeah. So working, working in or having a workshop is especially just me personally, you know, in high school and in college, you know, there were always opportunities to take, you know, a shop class or, you know, all that stuff. And I, I did marching band and all the different type of band stuff. So I, I, that was always my elective. Mm -hmm. And I realize now how much I missed out on, you know, working in those, in those areas, because you can learn all these different things that I, I now looking back, of course, that would have pushed me forward a lot more than, you know, just trying to figure it out on myself now. So good on you for taking those opportunities, yeah. realizing, especially seeing that you, you know, you grew up with the tape measure on your diaper. Obviously you're going to be, you know, some sort of a working with working with your hands type of a man growing up. You realize that you, you saw an opportunity to, you know, go into that field and you capitalized on it. Yeah, it was, it was really good. And growing up, my dad was a a teacher that I mentioned before. Right. And my mom was a realtor. And f for quite a few summers growing up, my parents bought a rental house um, back when they were still reasonably priced. Sure. Um, <laughs> and that was I what I don't dad... want to talk about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh. My, my dad and I would spend most of our summer being off. Uh, we would we would fix up the house. So uh, mom would help when she didn't have stuff uh, for real estate, but lots of times she was busy during the day. And that was what dad and I did over the summer for our summer break. Sure. Uh, we would, I would help dad do a lot of stuff around the rental houses. We did a lot of drywall. We did a lot of paint scraping. We did a lot of floors, uh, ripping carpet out and, uh, stuff like that. So, and a ton of painting, tons of painting. Sure. Um, but yeah, that, that gave me a lot of like working knowledge on stuff like that. And yeah, just, it's something that I've always been into. I did band when I was in middle school and then for whatever reason, marching band, like our high school, the marching band people were a little too into marching band. Um, <laughs> I was it, that guy, by the way. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was just way, way more than I, way more yeah. dedication than I wanted to put forth to, 
to learning what I was learning. And what instrument I was did you also, play, if you don't mind I played asking. clarinet. Okay, nice. Uh, my dad played clarinet, and he was in marching band and stuff, too. Sure. Uh, but for whatever reason, the marching band thing just... I, I liked sitting and playing way better <laughs> than trying to think all the steps out while play the music and everything, too. But yeah. I was also in a lot of sports. So in middle school, I also did football and wrestling. And then when I was in high school, I started doing shot put. Uh, during track season dude we would have been best friends growing up because i was i was the same way i did baseball wrestling football and then also marching band which was not yeah that it was crazy (laughs) but you know yeah yeah yeah, man that's awesome i did some soccer when i was growing up the park district had a a fairly big thing when i was like in elementary school um but yeah my dad not being like much of a sports guy when my first day showing up for football practice because they they hand you this big sack of pads and stuff like the the i think the third day was when we were supposed to be in full pads sure and i didn't know what what the heck i was doing i had my knee i had my i had the knee pads where my thigh pads went and like uh bless yeah. my coach uh, right. he he took me into the the locker room he's like all right this is how you do the belt this is how this is where these pads go i had no idea and, and i didn't want like i didn't want to look like a loser and ask right. somebody right so. right oh goodness <laughs> the the high early high school slash middle school peer pressure you don't realize uh how goofy you were being until you grow up and look back at it all for sure yeah what does i mean i know we're going on a on a tangent this is trying to be a little bit more about you know tools and all that fun stuff but i can't help myself what positions you play in football so i did center for a while nice uh, me too and um then i i really fell into being a guard more uh, because i I was one of the (laughs) one of the guys that was one of the more fast guys on our Right. offensive line so without pads i was not very fast uh a lot of the linemen and stuff that i was friends or that were on our team were much faster than me doing the 40 yard dash time but when we put pads on i was smoking them like oh. i don't know what what caused me to be faster with pads on mm. and them to slow down but um so i we did a lot of polling around like our tight end yeah uh, where i was the lead blocker yeah and, and then, then you get to absolutely blindside a poor fucker. Yeah. <laughs> those are my, yeah. I did the exact same thing where I was the center for a while and then I was a guard okay. and those, those, you know, guard pulls where you just absolutely, mm-hmm. basically for those of you who are not football fans, you know, basically on a guard pull, um, the, the lineman on the opposite side of where you line up, basically let one guy through and open this hole. And your job is to take as a guard, as soon as the ball is snapped, you take one step backwards and you turn whichever direction the ball's going. And there's a guy who just comes through the line who thinks, oh my gosh, they forgot to block me. I'm going to get the tackle here. And mm-hmm. you just absolutely blindside him and lay him right out. That, yep, that was yeah. my absolute favorite. <laughs> there was a, there was a really funny story. Like when we were, when we were in practice, um, that same thing happened the defensive end we didn't block him that was my guy to kick out right and right <laughs> he like came around the corner and i saw him like look directly at me right and i'm, I'm like running right at him and he right. turns and like runs right for the sideline oh. <laughs> and uh our coach made us run that play like 10 times in a row where i just like smoked him 10 times and he's like do not ever do that <laughs> the poor guy um, oh goodness yep there's some uh, will good will if you're sure. listening uh that was that's still one of my one of the funny stories <laughs> all right so 
going back towards the tools because I'm sure we're boring people out of their minds with football talk. <laughs> so you got out of college. You you started. You know, you're you're working all the way through college. You worked in a workshop, or you said. Yeah. So summers and winter breaks. Uh, so I first started working in a t-shirt shop. Um, that is where I makes all my Cage Daily Knives t-shirts now. Actually, um, but yeah, Tony. Tony was an entrepreneur. He was really good with my, or really good friends with my mom. Um, and he was actually, when I decided to go full-time, one of the first people that I talked to mm. about um, making a go of it. And that, that set me up to learn a lot because it was a, it was a three-man shop. It was Tony. He did all the artwork and orders and stuff and was kind of the, he was the owner of the business. And then Matt and I were doing the printing in the, in the shop. So it was a lot of good background to see what a small business looks mm. like and then uh, that was my my first summer out of high school and then my first summer of college I don't know how I actually made it through that summer because I worked at the t-shirt shop from I was there at five in the morning till noon and then I went home ate lunch took a shower then worked at the machine shop from uh 12:45 to five o'clock mm. And, uh, then I would go see my girlfriend after that and was up late and, uh, <laughs> I don't know how I, how I made it through there, but, um, it was really, really good to get all that experience and stuff in there. Um, and then the, after, after that first year, I just worked at the machine shop full time cause they had a lot more, uh, projects and stuff for me to do, uh, cause he didn't really have, uh, enough stuff lined up for me to do it full time that that first summer mm. um so just made that work and then um yeah going through college i went to purdue university got a mechanical engineering technology degree uh i would highly suggest that for anybody that wants to kind of do maker stuff because um it gives you a lot of hands-on experience in your job so like the the engineering the mechanical engineering degree they would have a lecture on it, have a test on it in mechanical engineering technology. We would have a lecture on it. Then we would actually go to the lab. Um, so when we were learning about welding, we actually welded. Then we took the the samples and we broke them all on a test fixture. We took mm. the high and low samples. We took them over to the materials lab. We then cut them even more, mounted them, looked at them under a microscope and did hardness tests and stuff of why one, one did better than the other and then we had our test on it interesting um so that was that was really good to get like a a good feel through the manufacturing and engineering and stuff too very interesting so after you went through college which it seems like it was very very beneficial for you and it really set you up it so going through high school in your first year of college you got to see the small business and how it works really intimately then you go mm -hmm. to college and you learn all of the things that you're going to turn around and use in your own small business. Mm -hmm. You know, tell me about the transition from, you know, after college to, you know, being a part-time maker to now, of course, you, you are KH Daily Knives. So you're, you're yeah. rocking it full time. So right out of, right out of high school uh, or right out of college, I went back and worked full time at the machine shop for, uh, for almost four years. I think it was, uh, we did almost exclusively work for Cummins, uh, by owner, the owner, Scott Cole, uh, Cole technologies was the, is the business they still are around, but, um, he was a director at Cummins in the after treatment group. Uh, so we did a lot of instrumentation, uh, putting thermocouples and stuff down inside 
the the bricks and the particulate filters and stuff for the for the Cummins test cells to do all their maps and stuff of the thermal growth. So at that time, particulate filters were a big thing uh, to catch the black soot that you, didn't, you would see spewing out of the back of diesel trucks. Uh, so that ceramic filter, as it would heat up in the center with the exhaust flow, it would also cool off the fastest in the center. Uh, and they would try to make make models and stuff to make sure that that didn't grow and contract too fast to actually break them. Mm-hmm. So we did a, did a lot of that work. We cut open a lot of stuff. That's where I started getting really good at welding. Um, we were sending them to a, a weld shop uh, that was pretty close to our machine shop. And we were having them do it up. And I go, Scott, I can weld. Like, I learned how to weld. And he's like, all right, weld this to this. And he goes, well, that doesn't look too bad. And it's only going to get better. (laughs) So then, uh, yeah, I did that for like, um, it was like a year and a half. year Or maybe a year. Uh, And then, um, because Scott was also a director at Cummins, he had a lot of engineers he would contract that retired from Cummins that he, that would contract back through our company to work uh, for special projects. If they had a project that they needed some extra expertise on, they would uh, contract back through our um, machine shop. And there was a project that was only supposed to be like a, like a two month project. And he didn't really have any retirees that wanted to do it. Uh, So uh, he asked me if I wanted to do it and to work or, to do both for a while. Sure. So I interviewed or interviewed with the, the manager at Cummins and uh, what was supposed to be a two month thing. They ended up signing a year contract <laughs> for me to, <laughs> to work there for the hours. Okay. And then uh, that, that got me into doing a lot of the, some of the test, the test measurement and stuff that I had done in college. Um, and then ultimately what I did at Navistar when I moved up to Chicago Um which uh, I wish I would have paid, like you talk about uh, things. I wish I would have paid a lot more attention to strain gauges when I was in college. Okay. Uh, they're like a really small, fine measurement uh, device that you can use to measure how much of a, how much something flexes. Okay. And uh, I didn't pay as much of attention because I thought I was just going to work in the machine shop my whole time. And I was like, yeah, I kind of get the gist. I don't fully understand it. Mm. And then uh, I ended up doing that for like, uh, like 14 years now oh, that I did a lot of strain gauge stuff. Um, and then, so I worked at the machine shop for like four years. And then that's when I met my wife, uh, through eHarmony and she was in the Chicagoland area. Um, uh, so decided to make the move to Chicago, um, and be with her. And, um, that's when I got my job at Navistar. They make international trucks, semis, and school buses. Um, lots of a big portfolio of stuff. They had a big testing facility. So I got, I got hired to do engine testing in, in Chicago. And then like a year and a half after I was there, um, they Navistar moved their whole truck testing facility from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Chicago. And that's how I started doing all my truck testing. Um, because I was so hands-on and good with making fixtures and stuff like that. I ended up taking on a lot of that work um, and was really good at it. Uh, at least I, I think I would think I was good at it. Uh, got a lot of good answers and stuff. And, there you go. um, well, so, then you did a good job then. Yeah. So 
we lived in our house when we first moved up to Chicago for 10 years and we had our, had our two twin boys, uh, in 2016 and our house, uh, was just kind of getting, uh, too small for us, uh, with everything. And then the pandemic, my wife was having to teach at home because she was a teacher and, uh, we just didn't have enough room for all the things that we were trying to get done. And we had, even before the pandemic, we were looking for a, a different house. And because we liked the house we lived in, we were like, we got to find the right house. And then in, uh, like September of 2020, we found the house that we ended up buying and right, we bought it in. Right when the housing market is at its highest. <laughs> it was, it was right, right before. Oh, so, so you the, got lucky is what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, so boy. the house had been on the market for like eight months and we slowly, like, the, when it first went on the market, we're like, well, it's way above our budget. And then, um, as it, as it was going on and on, uh, cause we originally saw it like in March and then it came, the price kept coming down. And then we're like, it's like right at the top of our price range. So we ended up buying it at October of 2020 was when we closed and moved in. We actually moved in on Halloween, which was Nice. Not exactly ideal. <laughs> I'd rather uh, I'd rather move in on Halloween than like a Friday the thirteenth or something like that. Like <laughs> it's one of those it's not quite the worst of the worst, but you know, it's it it could be an omen. Well, my, my wife took the boys and they went trick or treating and stuff while I was still carrying in boxes and stuff. Uh, so that wasn't exactly you know uh, ideal. But well. anyway, um so we yeah, unpacked, had this have a three car garage with a big upstairs for the shop and stuff. Uh I was super excited about that. And then um three months later in January found out that they were closing the testing facility that I worked at at Navistar. Oh. And they are moving it to San Antonio, Texas. Oh. Um so really I just w- just when you move. Like of course <laughs> that's when that happens. Yeah. So it was it was kind of a good thing, uh kind of a bad thing. Uh, lots of uncertainty, um, but our boys were starting kindergarten and the, the school that they go to is like literally like a 10 minute walk away. So, um, they were doing half day kindergarten. So at the, in August, when they started school is when my last day was at Navistar. Um, and they got severance pay and stuff, which was really nice. Um, so I was with the boys and stuff in the morning, tried to do some, some stuff, but it was usually pretty hard to get anything to happen there. Uh, and then I'd have like two hours in the afternoon when they were at school that I could come back and get some stuff done and then uh, work at night and stuff. Right. But now they're in first grade and uh, have a lot more time to uh, do stuff like this during the day and work on my knives. And uh, it's it's becoming a lot more financially doable with the extra time. Uh, but it was, it was great getting to have all that extra time with my boys, something I think we're going to always remember. Oh, sure, um, sure. Yeah, we, just getting to play uh, Hot Wheels track and <laughs> all sorts of stuff with them. That was that was a pretty special time. Well, with twin boys, I'm sure there's Hot Wheels and Lo- Legos all over the house. Yeah, we're still doing mainly the Duplo, the little bit bigger Lego blocks. Okay, okay. Um, but, yeah, they're starting to transition to the smaller ones, and I'm trying to hold off on the smaller ones because those are infinitely harder to clean up, right. and you step on them a lot more. Yep, yep. Um, but, yeah, we, we've done some some of the smaller Lego projects. We built a Y-Wing that I got for Christmas and one of the uh, the uh, Mando, the Mandalorian's Razor Crest right, ship right. from Star Wars. We built that out of Legos. 
Uh, so we have some fun playing with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's going to be fun. One of my boys is like a super builder. Uh, the other one really likes cars and uh, okay. wants to be a race car driver. So it's it's amazing <laughs> that they're only three minutes different and how how much different they are between right. each other. Right. That's but. that's so incredible for sure. But yeah. It's the then I started doing the or uh, it was 2019 is when we started our podcast um, right before Blade Show. You know, it, yeah. I was ju literally just about to transfer over to, of course, you have your your twins, which are, of course, your real babies. But let's talk about your other baby, the Knife Perspective podcast. Yeah. So that one has been a really fun one. I've gotten to talk to a lot of people that I didn't think I was going to get to talk to. Um, the more you kind of get sucked into the knife industry, the more you find out that a lot of your heroes are actually like normal people that like to talk to you about the same stuff you like to talk to them about. Right. Or at least what I, from what I found. Um, so that's been awesome. Um, we kind of got in right before the big podcast boom. Um, but, uh, it's, probably about the same time you guys started too i think right around the work for it part has started um but yeah th that would that's been awesome dan eastland of dogwood custom knives does it with me um we're we've got a couple of sponsors which is nice uh to help offset some of our costs for hosting and everything um but yeah the that's been that's been great in part of my business model for having tools for knife makers is because my instagram uh, following and through the podcast is all other makers, right? Um, that aren't gonna posit or aren't gonna usually buy many of my knives. But having See, I having the knife making stuff has been really good to to get the word out about that. I have had the same realization about six or eight months ago, where it's like, you know, my Instagram is ninety percent other knife makers, just because you know I was taking Instagram and using it as like a a not necessarily a you know personal profile but as as you post knives other knife makers look at it and like oh wow that's cool and you start conversations mm -hmm. and that's where you have your fun and then i realized like oh shoot i'm interacting with all these other knife makers and now it's just become knife makers only on my on my instagram so i'm not selling anything off of my instagram feed where there's other people who specifically cater towards you know knife buyers and they're using the correct hashtags for that and whatever or knife mm -hmm. collectors and they sell an incredible amount on on instagram a, a perfect example of that is matt gentry and mm -hmm. it's like oh shoot now i realize that my instagram is all other knife makers so let's go ahead and find something that i can possibly sell to them which kind of fell in my lap with the with the carbon fiber situation mm -hmm. but again i mean of course we can you know your your 3d printed tools and your sanding buddy and all of those all of those you know knife maker centric tools are an incredible addition to those people yeah yeah i've gotten tons of really good feedback on them and it makes me really happy to be able to be a positive force for the industry i know a lot of people love listening to our podcast because ours is a little bit uh more interview focused mm -hmm. um where we we have the have somebody that's usually an expert in whatever, uh, or even just somebody that we know that we think other people should listen to too. Um, it's been great to highlight some of those little lesser known people that haven't gotten as much airtime. Mm -hmm. uh, one of our most recent podcasts is, was Joe Flowers, 
Uh, he's kind of one of the more influential people in the knife industry that most people have no idea who he is. He's a knife designer for Condor Knife and Tool. He's uh, does a lot of not, he's done quite a few knives with like Tops knives. Um, he's a he does a ton of like uh, he's kind of one of the more expertised in machetes, uh, but he has a business bushcraft bushcraft global uh, where they actually go to the amazon and dan's been down there with them seven times now um, where they they spend a week and a half down in the jungle and they learn from the matisse tribe and uh, learn a bunch of like jungle area stuff but yeah just people that a lot of a lot of people and he also writes a ton for the different magazines and stuff too um, just being able to highlight some of those people that to get the the word about these awesome people that a lot of people don't really know that much about yeah absolutely and i know you guys are about an hour and 10 minutes listening to this podcast but as soon as you're done go over to the knife perspective podcast give them a follow if you haven't already because it's yeah. it's amazing how you know you listen to your first couple podcasts and it's like you guys sound as if you're super tight and you're like it it seems as if you guys have been doing this a long time even though like it seems like you didn't have to go through many growing pains to you know get this podcast up and running yeah dan and i both met each other for the first time at blade show in 2012 um and we we became fairly good friends and he invited me out to andy roy's shop when he was uh Dan was an apprentice for Andy Roy, Fiddleback Forge. Mm -hmm. And ever since I toured that shop and seeing that, that was kind of when the, it hooked for me to, uh, that I really wanted to do the knife making thing. Because when I moved to Chicago, I um, always kind of wanted to have a machine shop in my garage to have stuff that I can, I like to make stuff. And I don't like uh, buying new stuff if I can fix it. Sure. So um, now I have a ton of stuff that I can the mark yeah, of a broke. the mark of a true maker right there is that sentence. <laughs> yeah, so um like my boys my boys are hard on stuff so I can usually fix quite a bit of their stuff uh to for them to just break it again but uh <laughs> usually in a different place. But uh yeah, it's it's awesome getting to having the equipment and stuff. I just like I like to be creative and it's a good outlet to facilitate that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess kind of going back towards your your engineering mind and how you think about things just a little bit more than it seems like most people do. One of the things just kind of patrolling through your Instagram, I saw that in your Instagram at the top, you have your your information, your cage daily, your Kyle daily, yada, yada, yada. And then you have a link tree link. And that mm -hmm. will, that you click on that link and then you get a nice feed of all of the different things you want people to check out. Yeah. One of the things that I have done and I have done kind of stupidly is I just put, you know, a random like let's for, for instance, I have a YouTube video coming out. Well, I just do a link to the latest YouTube video up there and that that link is always changing and it's it's never it's never super simple to like let's go ahead and let let's say I have a random person that wants to buy a knife from me, even though my feed seems to be about 90% other make knife makers, which of course I love you guys all, but you know, you guys aren't making the knife or you guys aren't buying the knives. Um, you know, if there is a person who is actually looking for this, that, and the other, they have to kind of search around to find all those links. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's just another little small detail that, you know, is obvious once you see it and you're like, Oh, duh, of course that's the smart way to do it. 
but yeah. it's just another thing that you've done that is just highly intelligent. Thanks. Yeah, the Linktree thing is actually free. Um, they have a paid thing where you can get more tracking and see um, who her, how many times people click on what. Uh, I don't. I haven't haven't really found that to be super helpful, but. Um, yeah, you're able to move all those around and change them really easily on their website. Mm. Um, and it helps to to point people to things that your specific products or uh, down at the very bottom of the link tree, it has like literally every social media thing that I think I am on that you can you can click all the little icons. Right, right. Uh, too, so. All right, to end this podcast, I want to talk about I mean, obviously, making knives, you use your files a lot. You use your belt grinder a lot. You use, you know, you have your standard things. But do you have a specific tool that you don't really see a whole lot of other people using that you think is an absolute game changer in your shop? Uh, so the the thing that I use the a lot more than most other people, I think, is my 9-inch disc grinder. Mm. So uh, for doing my kitchen knives, I, I don't think I could make a knife as good as I can without the disc grinder now. Mm. Um, being able to get that, like almost your entire bevel on there at one time, uh, that that has um, been a game changer. And then I have a, that's called a Nielsen disc system. Uh, so it's a guy up in Canada that made this like, um, like a magnetic aluminum hub. Okay. And then he has uh, steel plates and you can swap the plates on and off uh, for your different grits or what I have is a couple of rubber pads mounted to that also. So it's almost like a contact wheel when I'm pushing against it for the, the finer grits, mm -hmm. just give it a little bit of a cushion. And, um, that took, that helped take my, it usually takes me between like on a 154 CM blade, uh, it usually takes me between like five and 10 minutes to hand sand a, uh, eight inch chef's knife now with the disc grinder now that that contact wheel what is that connected to so that it's it's like a contact wheel so it's a it's an aluminum plate or it's a steel plate that magnets onto the disc grinder and then i just okay. put a 16th inch piece of rubber over top of the whole gotcha. thing gotcha. Uh, so it has a little bit of flex behind it instead of up against that hard steel backing now i've also seen on your instagram the little rotary tools that you use mm -hmm. yeah i've used some of those um the i've kind of used the the right angle uh die grinder from milwaukee it's a m12 battery powered one mm -hmm. a lot and then i also use the uh fordham tool it's uh the brand is Fordham. It's uh, basically like a Dremel on steroids. So right. it's a flex flex shaft tool that has a bigger motor. And uh, I mount the handle usually in my vise. Uh, I have got a couple of uh, soft jaws that I got on Amazon. They're actually for like gun makers to hold uh, different parts while they're working on them. But uh, one of the, the curves is like the exact diameter pretty much for the handle. Nice. And then... Um, that was one of the biggest things from the file work. Uh, I used to put the, the knife in the vise and then I'd hold the, the, the carbide bit, uh, handle in my hand and like push, uh, where I needed it to go. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes that carbide bit would like, uh, make my hand move and jump. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, 
yeah, then it would mess up the file work. Right. Um, and then I don't know, I don't know why it kind of went in my head to try to mount that in the vice, but that was like a total game changer. Then I, I hold the, the knife into and push the knife into the carbide, uh, piece and you've got both hands on there and you're able to really hold it steady. And I, I don't have that jumping problem and stuff like that. And you're able to, to really hog a bunch of metal quickly. Sure. That makes that. sense because, you know, you're already used to holding onto the knife and pushing it into whatever you're working on with your belt grinder or your, your, um, your disc sander. So it's just kind of natural for you to assume that same, you know, setup when you're doing these, this type of situation yeah. as well. So it, it seems, yeah. I mean, another highly intelligent thing that, you know, most people would just be like, oh, well you hold it, you're supposed to hold the, the tool in your hand. So I'm just going to try to make this thing happen. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you think outside the box. Yeah. So that, that worked really well. Steve Schwartzer was actually very impressed with that. And he actually ordered a set of those jaws uh, from Amazon. He's like, help me find them on Amazon here. <laughs> <laughs> so he ordered them right away. Now, when you're, when you're influencing Steve Schwartzer to do something, you know, it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was, he was pretty impressed with that little, that little trick right there. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Kyle, I want to thank you again for jumping on the podcast with me. Where, yeah. where is it that people can find you? Um, pretty much cage daily knives on every social media and it's cage daily knives.com. Uh, and yeah, that's, uh, pretty much it. It's pretty simple. I try to keep everything fairly uniform across all the, the social medias and stuff. You can find me on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, um, and the knife perspective podcast. There you go. There you go. Well, Kyle, again, this was a fantastic interview. I'm sure we'll have you on again. Everybody, yeah, sounds great. Any, anytime, you man. Absolutely. Everybody, I hope you have a fantastic working week. I've been Brian Cohn. Definitely check out my man Kyle at Cage Daily Knives. Thank you guys all for listening, and have a great working week. Woo! See you guys.